The Word of God from 1 Samuel. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients say, says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Chris. Please remain standing as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Open the eyes of our heart that we may see the truth that is there for us. Lord, help us to take in what you want us to know and to learn. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. We ask these things through Jesus Christ, and God's people said, amen. amen. Please be seated. If I haven't had the opportunity to uh, meet you. My name is Jason Walsh. I'm the associate pastor here at Denver Presbyterian Church, and it is my privilege to take us through this passage this morning that we are hearing from 1 Samuel and indeed just heard. And one of the things that happens when we go into the Word is we try to plumb the depths not just of what it means, but what it may mean for us today in our contemporary world. 
And not much has changed in the world from David and Saul's day to today because particularly when it comes to how the world deals with, thinks about, and negotiates power. Power is a very potent thing. Power is itself the capacity to change circumstances. And one of the things that we're going to be thinking about today is power, how people relate to it. And it reminds me of when a mentor of mine was sharing something with me. And I didn't really fully appreciate it at the time. I was 27 when he said it to me, and I was still optimistic about the world, as optimistic as a Gen X person gets. So I said, you know, well, yeah, it's half empty, but at least there's something in the glass. That's optimism for Gen X, okay? Um, And I didn't really fully understand what he was sharing with me, but he said, Jason, sometimes you can take the path of power or you can take the path of suffering. So just consider which path did Jesus take? And I did what I usually did when I was sitting with my mentor at the time. I just went, wow. And then I quickly tried to think of something else clever or insightful to say because I wanted him to be impressed with me. But really, I have to admit, I had no idea what he was talking about. It wasn't until years and years later that I realized the context from which he was speaking. He was actually sharing with me in a cryptic way that those who were in charge of the organization he was a part of were pressuring him. They were pressuring him to do something that would be, that would get quick results, quick popularity, quick impact. But what he was struggling with is what he was being asked to do is something that violated his own principles, but more than that, to him, it violated the reason that he was a part of that organization in the first place. He just felt like, I'm supposed to be here as the one who says, we get there when we get there, we we take our time with things, we contemplate, and he was being told to get a quick result. He was being pressured to be expedient, and he was like, that's, that's not really why I'm here. And what I only realize now in hindsight is that when he said no to those who were pressuring him, he was in some ways ending his time with the organization, which led to a lot of complications. He had just bought an extraordinarily large house to host more ministry in associated with his role, and now he was going to have to put it right back on the market because he was going to have to find something else to do, probably somewhere else. It's interesting how the things we say sometimes, sometimes don't land for others until far later. And certainly my mentor's words didn't land with me until years later when I fully appreciated the context. And yet his words stay with me. There's a path of power and a path of suffering in which did Jesus take? And if you're familiar with what Jesus did on our behalf, that he took the ridicule, the beatings, the death, that only the most grave sin would require, he took it 
on our behalf. Jesus took that path of suffering, and in doing so, he upended the world's way of approaching power dynamics. There's this really helpful word that Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, coined to describe this really good thing coming from the least expected place. He called it a catastrophe, a disaster that brings really profoundly good results. And that's what Jesus did for us. In suffering, in taking the path of suffering, he opened up the realms of blessing that we had no right to. And when we think about how Jesus is setting up his kingdom that way, then we can go to a passage like this one with a story as complicated as it is and understand it. Because we need a kingdom of God imagination to really inhabit what's going on here with David and Saul back in the Old Testament. It's going to help us have a better sense of this story. And if we do not have the kingdom of God in mind, we may read the story and believe that David actually gave up a great opportunity for advancement. We may read the story and think that David blew it. His enemy was right there and he could put an end to all this hassle. We might be tempted to think of it that way, but David is actually looking at it from a far different perspective than the world. And we can learn much from seeing his actions and his words, but also seeing Saul's actions and Saul's words and really coming to understand the vast difference between those who have the kingdom of God in their mind and those who have themselves on their mind. So we had this beautiful reading that told us what David said in the wake of this incident and what Saul said in the wake of this incident. But let's actually look at the incident itself. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, it begins with this. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Basically, we know where he is. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the Wild Goats Rocks. Wild Goats Rocks, that's a great band name, but um, it's just where they're choosing to find him and find them, David and his men. David started out with a band of about 400 guys that he spent his time with, and they were exceptionally devoted to David, and they thought he was awesome, and they went out and did awesome stuff together. And then by this time, there have been about 200 additional men joined David's men, right? So about 600 guys are with David. And Saul goes out with 3,000 Five times the number of men. Saul is still pursuing David. If you've been following along in this story, what we've been hearing about is how Saul, as king of Israel, had started to neglect the ways of the Lord, and actually the Lord had said, all right, you're done. I'm taking my hand off of you. And God sends Samuel the prophet to anoint David this young upstart, to be king after Saul has gone away. And of course, the tradition of the time was that it was a lineage. 
if you are king, then your son becomes king after you. And God is saying, no, that's not the way it's going to be. It's not going to be Saul's house. It's going to be David. And Saul is insanely jealous of David. So much so that he throws a spear at him at one point. He pursues him. He wants him dead. He sends people after him. David does all kinds of wild things to escape the pursuit of Saul. And now, Saul is coming in force against David. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, verse 3, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Okay, this is the part we're going to have fun with, okay? David and his men, verse 4, now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. They're hiding out. They know that Saul is coming for them. And so Saul and his force are coming for him, and David and his men are hiding in the very back of this cave. Well, Saul isn't, doesn't know exactly where David is, so Saul is out there with his army ready to take over, ready to like get after David and his mighty men, and Saul's like, okay, yeah, I got to go, and he goes into the cave to relieve himself. He needs to take a moment. I'm not going to get too explicit here, but let's just say maybe he's taking enough time to do wordle in the front part of the cave, if you understand what I'm saying. He goes in to relieve himself. And the men of David said to David, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. So they're saying, David, this is it. Your enemy is right there. You can do something to end this right now. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He goes in and he cuts off part of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed. To put, out of my, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. What has happened here is as David goes in, and let's just assume that while Saul is taking his break, he's in a position, it means that Saul is at the most vulnerable position a human being can be in, all right? Think about the last time you were two miles outbound on a hike and realized you got to go. How hard did you look for the right thicket to go behind? Because you don't want anyone or anything sneaking up on you, right? And some of you are like, yeah, that's a beginner move, Walsh. Some of us just hold it till we're done with the hike. 
But why? Because it's so vulnerable. And this idea of cut off, when you hear cut off, what it's going to resonate in your mind. If you're hearing this like those in Israel heard it the first time it was written down and it was explained to people, what you would hear is you would hear cut off and you would think about all of the ways someone could be cut off, that their relationship with the Lord could be ended, that their relationship with future generations could be ended because the cutting off could remove the capacity to have future generations, if you understand my meaning. And so this cutting off of the robe is going to echo in your mind of like, oh, David really, he, he got close to going for it and just putting it into all of this right now. To be cut off, to be cut off from life, to be cut off from a future, to be cut off from progeny, to be cut off from your people. And that is going to be echoing in your mind as you hear what they then go on to say. Because what they then go on to say explains their motives and kind of where their perspective is. And David's perspective is this. Whoever is king, whoever is safe, whoever is in power is less important than who is God. David's perspective is such that he refuses to cut off Saul absolutely because he knows that God is the one who puts Saul in the position of power he's in. Even though Saul is doing a bad job right now, even though Saul is doing evil things right now, to David's mindset, if God put him in that position, it is not my decision to remove him. It's God's decision. And that's the perspective David is bringing to this. And in some ways, David is practicing the very loving kindness that Jonathan swore him to. When he's saying, I'm not going to cut Saul off completely from all of his future and all of those things. I'm actually going to practice this loving kindness, what the Old Testament calls chesed. That covenantal love that sacrifices itself for the sake of the other. And David chooses not to take action, to kill Saul and cut him off entirely. That loving kindness, that self-sacrificing love defines the relationship that Yahweh himself has with his people. And David is so used to thinking about that, used to thinking about how the Lord loves him and loves his people that he can't imagine going before God to remove Saul. He's going to let the Lord do that himself. And that is summed up in David's statement, I will not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. The anointed of the Lord is the Lord's to deal with. And he's getting this from just the tradition in there and, and within the whole society of Israel at the time. Let's remember this is Israel. It's the first and only functional theocracy where God is supposed to be in charge. And it's still complicated because people are complicated and we're sinful and we are selfish. But established in the very law of God is like from Exodus 22, verse 28. You hear this, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of the people. And this is echoed 
This is echoed in multiple places in the scriptures. I mean, think about, think about the commandments, the Ten Commandments. The fifth commandment is honor your father and mother. It's honoring the authorities that God puts into your life. And so David is like soaked in this. And we see that it's not just David. It's even the New Testament writers. Paul himself in Romans 13 says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul is saying... Whether the leader, the person in charge, acknowledges God or not, they are borrowing their authority and power from God because God is the one who allows them to inhabit that position. And if we are anarchists, if we say no one should rule us at all, we're actually going against what God has established and set up for our good, for the good of our neighbor, for the good of our society. And this is what's inhabiting David's imagination. David is honoring God by suffering the injustices of that authority structure that he finds himself in. And in spite of all of his faults, David's world is ultimately centered on God. He's choosing to wait on the Lord to bring about the good future he knows is possible and believes is coming. He's not willing to take just any path to the throne, to take any expedient to power and authority. David's not going to take any shortcuts, and nor should we. But the temptation is powerful to take a shortcut. And what are the shortcuts that we look for? Do we... Do we spend time dreaming of what we would do if we won the lottery? Why would we do that? Because in our society, financial power is a really potent source of power. But when we start to imagine, like, what would I do? I know there's the obligatory, well, I'd give a whole lot of money to charity, and my church would be set up, and that would be great, and I'd pay off some stuff for my parents, and that would be fine. But then I'd get the nice new car. But ultimately, what it leads to is like, oh, I'd show that person up. I know that they want a red car, so I would buy a red car and drive past their house real slow. Why? Why do we do that? Do we justify grabbing at any amount of advantage by saying, I'm just looking out for myself? I'm just looking out for my family. I'm just looking out for me and mine. If it tempts us to the point that we're willing to take a shortcut and violate what God has established as his ways for his people, it's not good. Maybe we need to take ourselves more to God's word, take ourselves more to talking to him in prayer so that our mindset and our imagination will be more like David's, more focused on what Yahweh would have for us and the path that he takes. So we've heard what David says in these circumstances, but what does Saul say in these circumstances? As we heard read, 
you hear that David makes his case and says, I'm innocent, and I've not done anything, and I could have, but I'm not going to strike out against the Lord's anointed. And Saul hears this, and he says, you know, like, and just think about it. David has been so careful that he even refers to Saul as father. This loving submission of a good relationship they used to have in the past. Saul hears it and says, whose voice is this? Is this my son, David? And you hear Saul like making the connection. And then he weeps. And after weeping, he says, Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. He's devastated. And he's still thinking about himself and what what he believes are his. His family, his name, his father's house. And we may read this and think, but Saul is having this moment, like he's weeping. And one commentator I found very helpful said this, as as David has confronted Saul with the truth, Saul recognizes not only the truth about David, that he's ultimately going to be king, but he realizes the truth about himself, that God really has let him to his own devices, and it's ruinous for him. He's making a mess of his whole life. And Saul weeps. And the commentator said this, beneath both tragedy and failure, there is the inconsolate, inarticulate, unmeasured pathos of a life gone empty. Saul realizes in the moment of that confrontation where David has said, I'm innocent. Why are you pursuing me like I'm not? I didn't kill you when I had a chance. Why do you seek to kill me every chance you get? And Saul, having this startling moment of clarity, realizes, I've done it. I've brought the very thing I was most afraid of, that I would lose my kingdom that I would lose my office, my role, my family, but I've lost it. He declares in verse 17, David, you are more righteous than I. And in verse 19, Saul looks to the world's conception of power that might makes right. How does he do that? Verse 19, For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? Like Saul is still looking at the way the world does power. That if you are the stronger, you win. If if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? It's a rhetorical question. No. But that's the world's way of doing power. But David's mercy undoes that power dynamic. And the rest of verse 19, so may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. 
there is a cycle of reciprocity in the world. Something bad happens, sometimes it's answered with retribution. But God's mercy overwhelms that. It overwhelms the eye-for-an-eye dynamic, as it does here. And Saul requests, he makes this request, please don't cut me off, David. And in making that request, he's trying to save face. He has, by his own actions, disqualified himself from being king. And he's terrified of these consequences that he deserves. He's he's perpetually defending himself and seeking his own gain, even in defeat. Because in spite of all the warnings he's received, in spite of all the good advice that he's been given, in spite of all the chances he's been given, Saul's world is centered on himself. Where David's world is centered on God, Saul's world is centered on himself. And we can get locked into thinking about our own kingdoms, can't we? We can get locked into thinking about our own position, our own influence, what we have earned or deserved, what we have accomplished, what we think we are entitled to. We can get locked into thinking this way. But we need to remember that if we are in Christ, all that is good about us All that is praiseworthy comes from God. Comes from God in the way he made us. Comes through Jesus in the way he has saved us and is saving us, making us into the people we ought to be. That's our actual value. It's a borrowed value and a borrowed dignity, and we are blessed to have it. And it's beautiful. When we look at a story like this, it can be very tempting to say we should be like David, we should not be like Saul. I've tried to share what I've learned about David's perspective and Saul's perspective from this passage, but ultimately what this brings us down to is a question that nagged me the entire week as I was preparing this sermon and thinking about what is it for us here? to learn. I think it is important for us to remember that our world does need to be focused around God and what He has for us. And we need to be wary of those ways in which we focus our world around ourselves. But even more than that, we need to think about where our safe place will be in a world where the power dynamic is so cutthroat, so harsh, so unrelenting, where might is usually right. That's still the way the world works. And what I find at the end of that chapter is David swore this to Saul. David said, you're good, we're good. And then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. 
What I see here is I see David making a courageous choice. A courageous choice not to feel pressure that as Saul makes this realization and has this moment of clarity, that doesn't mean that Saul is suddenly a safe person to be around. David's made that mistake in the past, and he shouldn't make it again. Saul is still a dangerous individual. He should not have been pursuing David. There are injustices in the use of power, and it's not just something that happens in the Old Testament. It happens right now today. Whether it's the petty bureaucrat flexing their capacity for you to get something done because they're the ones who approve the paperwork you have to submit whether it's the law enforcement officer who is stopping you for reasons you don't know and they're vague in explaining and it makes you deeply suspicious of what their motive might actually be. Politicians promising wild, unrealistic things and inciting people to violence over the, the hope of that unrealistic promise. We live in a world where these power dynamics create injustices. And what do we do when we're around someone who is in a position of authority, who is so abjectly self-centered that the use of their power comes in clumsy and harmful ways? I think our culture has learned a lot in recent years about the devastating impact of those in leadership who are narcissistic. There's even ways of talking about narcissistic systems in organizations, that whether the person in charge is a narcissist or not, the system around it creates a dynamic similar to those around a narcissist. And what it comes down to is that is the only person who matters, and everyone must make sacrifices to accommodate them. When you look at the life of Saul at this point in his life, he's behaving in ways that rhyme, at least, with a narcissistic leader. And what does David do? He confronts, but he is ultimately obeying God and maintaining healthy boundaries, even after Saul makes this emotional display. Even though some of the things he says sound right, David does not accompany him. On the way home, he goes to his safe place with his people because David is trusting that God is going to deliver and make things right and that David himself is responsible to not heedlessly put himself in the path of harm again. In spite of all of the righteousness and mercy that is brought up in this passage, we should never be compelled to act as if dangerous individuals are somehow safe. And I think that's something that we can take away from this passage. It's something that we can look at and consider how we interact with those who are deeply complicated and maybe not necessarily safe. Because the world's power dynamic is so infected by sin, so devastating for people, Ultimately, the only way we can overcome it is to find ourselves in the one 
who overcame it all for our sake. Jesus was tempted three times in the wilderness, if you remember. And he was tempted to take shortcuts. He was tempted to meet his own needs in spite of what God had called him to do. So he's out in the wilderness fasting, communing with the Lord, communing with his Father in heaven. And what does Satan tempt him with? Tell these rocks to become bread. And Jesus resists that temptation. And then he's tempted to make a spectacle and draw attention. Throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple. Didn't the Lord say that the angels would guard you and keep your feet from striking the stone? And Jesus says, no, that's not it. And then lastly, he's shown all the kingdoms of the world, and Satan says, these will all be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. And Jesus, being the perfect manifestation of humanity, he says, I'm not going to bow down and worship anyone except God my Father. And Jesus, in refusing those shortcuts to power, to influence, he establishes what the true path of his beautiful service to us is. It's not a path up to a pinnacle. It's not a path of spectacle and showing off. It's not a path where he meets his own needs first. No, he submits himself to the will of his Father, and in doing so, he has to take the path of suffering. And when you get to Gethsemane, when he's praying in the garden, Jesus says, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from, from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Lord, you've set this thing up. You've given me this cup of suffering that you're, you're telling me I have to drink. Is there any other way? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. It is a heavy, heavy thing to consider suffering as one of the things God would call us into. But he does it in a way that reminds us of his care, his compassion, and the fact that we don't have to go where he hasn't already gone. There are going to be times in our lives when there will be shortcuts offered, and we must not take them. We must go the hard, long way around. And we must simply wait on the Lord to bring about the justice and the blessings that we long for because Jesus knows this agony. And he joins us in the waiting rooms and the stagnant situations in our lives. He joins us as we tolerate the abuse from those who are wielding their power in unhealthy ways. He is with us when we patiently, calmly rebuke the person who has lost any emotional regulation and is yelling at us, this is who Jesus is. And as we center our world on him, we will have the courage to stand even in the face of chaotic 
injustice. Amen.